We're thankful for another opportunity to be back and get to look into the Word of God another time. Uh, we've been studying through the third chapter of John, got down through about verse 13 last time. And just to quickly review where we were and left off, Jesus is in a discourse as he speaks to Nicodemus. And his uh, saying that you're a master of Israel and you know not these things. And really he's calling attention to who the expert on the things of God really are. The Jews, um, the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes especially, all considered themselves experts in the word of God and in not the knowledge of God. Jesus is letting Nicodemus know that you're a master and you don't even understand the earthly things, much less the spiritual and that no man has ascended to heaven and met God. Nobody has the authority to speak on the things of God like Jesus does. So we come down to verse 14, and Jesus here is going to reveal the work that he has been sent to accomplish. Why was the Messiah here? Why was the Messiah coming to the earth? And we'll start by just briefly saying that in this day, Israel, the nation of Israel, and really what was left of the nation Israel in this day, was under the rule of the Roman government. Uh, the emperor Caesar had authority over uh, most of the known world in, in this day, and they certainly had authority over Israel. And what that had produced was a desire for Israel to be out from under the authority of the Romans and be free again, be made to be uh, the great nation that it was under the ro uh, rule of David. And that was their expectation of the Messiah. They took all of the prophecies literally and as they looked and said he's going to sit on the throne of David, they expected Jesus to come to become the king of Israel, to lead them into battle, and to bring them ultimate victory over all the nations. Now that is a very earthly view of the work of Jesus, and it's incorrect. And Jesus is going to work here to correct that thinking and cause Nicodemus to understand the real reason that the Messiah was coming. We see other examples of this thinking in the Gospels. Uh, Luke being one of the more prominent, I, I believe, as they were drawing near to Jerusalem, they were expecting the kingdom to immediately appear. They were looking for uh, Jesus, as he came into Jerusalem, to ascend up to the throne, take over, and run the Romans out. That's what they were looking for. And in Luke 17, verse 20, he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come. So they were looking for Jesus to set up that kingdom of God, and that being a natural kingdom, and Jesus to sit on the throne of David, naturally speaking, and rule over Israel. That's what they were looking for. And there is still a crowd 
even in Baptist and Christian, we'll say, in the Christian circle that continue to look for the exact same thing that the Pharisees were looking for. And it's, a, uh, it's very Jewish thinking is what it is, but it's incorrect by the Scripture. What was Jesus really coming to do? Was he coming to set up a natural kingdom but was rejected? Uh, no, if, if he had come to set up a natural kingdom, then they would have accepted him. That's what they wanted. But because he wasn't going to throw Caesar out and take over and allow Israel to be the great kingdom, he was rejected. So uh, he says in verse 14, and he's going to hearken back to the books of Moses, uh, the book of Numbers specifically here, uh, with a type and a shadow that we see. So verse 14, we'll read, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now that's verse 14 and 15 of John 3 that we just read. And Jesus hearkening back now, on a type and shadow of the Old Testament. And, I, uh, you know, we've got to be careful when we look to the Old Testament and to the prophecies. The brazen serpent and the children of Israel in the wilderness, all of that indeed did happen. But those things weren't written to be a historic uh, reference for us to look back on, though they are accurate historic and I don't want you to take that wrong, but that's not the purpose of these things. And as Jesus hearkens back here to the children of Israel in the wilderness, and this serpent that Moses raised up, he's using that as a type, as a shadow, as a picture, as a parable, if you'll have it, of the spiritual work that he was coming to accomplish. So this is Numbers chapter 21, Verse 7, and we're going to read 7, 8, and 9 here. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass, that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. So I think sometimes this is taken fantastically, when really it shouldn't be. Um, these were not serpents that were on fire, and they were some sort of spiritual beings. But God had brought serpents, venomous snakes, here. And they were all over the camp, and they were biting people. And if you've ever heard about a snake bite, and what it feels like, and how that it burns, and how that that venom is poisoning your body, and shutting down your organs, and causing your blood to thicken, and it, it makes you to sweat, makes your heart to race... All of these things, that's where the name fiery serpent came. When they bit 
it was like you were on fire in the inside as that venom flowed through your bloodstream. So here, the people are being bitten by these serpents, and they're being bitten because they've sinned. So their sin brought this judgment upon them, and they had no way and no means of escape from the bite of these serpents, but it was a death sentence. If you were bitten by this serpent, you were surely and certainly going to die. And so Moses prayed to God, and God provided a means for them to escape death from the bite of this serpent. He made a brazen, a bronze, a brass serpent, and put it on a pole, and lifted it up, and, you know, you imagine why would he put it on a pole and lift it up, so that it's easier to see. Uh, the higher it is, the easier it is for everyone in the camp to see. And all that they had to do was look towards that serpent. Now, they had to believe that God was able to heal them. They had to believe that this would be effective for them to look to it. But if they would look to that in faith in their heart, then God would heal them and cause them not to die from the venomous bite of these snakes. So that's the picture that we've got. And obviously, this ties to Jesus and his work greatly so that we can understand what's going on in Numbers and get an understanding of the spiritual side that Jesus has come to accomplish. So, you know, you think about the bite of the serpent that brings death. Well, automatically, and I believe for any Bible reader, they know uh, certainly that the serpent, uh, the first place that he's referred to, is there in Genesis chapter 3. And there the serpent, the devil, the dragon, the fiery serpent, there he caused Eve to believe a lie and to disobey the commandment of God, and she brought to Adam, and Adam disobeyed God. So they were bitten there by the fiery serpent, the devil. His lies flowed through them and brought death, and there was no hope of healing from that. When man plunged into sin, now you think about how hopeless that man is to do anything about that, there was no chance that any child that was going to be born would escape the venom of the devil. They were all poisoned by sin, and that's evident even 6,000 years later, plus or minus, and still everyone that's born into this world is born destined to sin and is guilty before God. There's no hope among man that there be deliverance from the bite of the serpent. And so, the answer in Numbers was Moses prayed to God, and God provided an escape. Well, here in the New Testament, and in the true work of Christ, God is the provider of the escape. If God did not provide His Son Jesus, then there would be no escape from the death. And it's worth noting, in numbers, they were going to die. 
and their bodies would be buried. But in the garden, the, the death provided from the disobeying of the word of God was not that I'm going to go to the graveyard and life was going to leave my fleshly body, but it was that eternal death, that death of judgment for disobedience and transgression to the word of God. It was that uh, that death in hell that was produced, and it was that death that Jesus came to save from. Uh, we've said many times, God's word was, in the day you eat of this, ye shall surely die. But we read that Adam ate of that that day, and yet lived 600, 700 years after that he ate of it. So either God told a lie or God was speaking of a death that was not the death of the flesh. God was speaking of a spiritual death, a separation from the will of God, no longer at peace with God, but sin had separated them and now they were carrying a death sentence for judgment because of their transgression, Jesus came to deliver man from that judgment and that the bite of the serpent would no longer produce death, though bitten. Now, the, the serpent in the wilderness, it was for those that had been bitten. Jesus is for those that have fallen victim to sin. And we, we know that that's the whole world by the word of God but the whole world doesn't realize that. So uh, let's look at just some of the similarities. This serpent in the wilderness was made out of bronze, not gold, not silver, uh, but very much a, a secondary metal and one that's not very valuable. In Isaiah chapter 53, now I, I, say, I say again, not valuable, by the valuation of man, but if you were bitten by a serpent and you looked to that and lived because of it, that would be the most valuable uh, item in all of the wilderness and in all of the world. That's what saved you from certain death. So as man would valuate it, it's not worth very much. But when you're bitten by the serpent, it's life to you. So in Isaiah 53, verse number 2, For he shall grow up as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. So form means figure or appearance. Comeliness means splendor. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So uh, that word see, it means to inspect or to look closely at. And as man inspects Jesus, well, there's no beauty nor form nor comeliness to him on the outside. Certainly, he didn't look like the Messiah on the outside, or all of Israel would have believed and followed him. But he was rejected, and still he's rejected today. And you know, as man looks... He's unable to realize that he's a sinner. And man looks on Jesus as that that's in the way, as that that's a detriment to society, <coughs> as that that ought to be removed. There's not much value placed on Jesus today. And it's because they do not know 
who that he is. We can see this also in John chapter 7, verse number 52. They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. So Nicodemus here is defending Jesus in chapter 7. Certainly a change in direction of that man's life. But here they say, look, he's from Galilee. And if you search the scriptures, there's no prophet coming out of Galilee. He looked like something that was worthless to those people. He didn't look like the Messiah. He didn't appear to be the Messiah. But we know by the word of God, he wasn't from, born in Galilee. He was born in Bethlehem. But because they were looking outwardly, and think about it now, here's Jesus, and they're looking at where he lives to make a judgment of who he is instead of all the mighty works that the man's accomplishing while in this world. No beauty that we should desire him. And now he's a serpent. The brazen serpent was a serpent, but not venomous. Not that that's producing death, but a serpent that's producing life. So Jesus, Jesus came, and in Romans chapter 8, we read that Jesus came, hold on, let me turn and read it, verse number 3, for what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh. So there's the problem. We got the law, which is just the equal standard of God among all of mankind. But the law could not save because of the flesh of man. Man's flesh had been bitten by the serpent and man could not keep the law for righteousness in his life because sin had overcome that man. So, what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. So Jesus came, and you know what He came with? A flesh, just like the one you and I had, except His flesh was without sin. He was not cursed or bitten with, by the same serpent that you and I have been bitten with, and he lived without sin. He looked like man, but he was a perfect God-man in the flesh. So the serpent in the wilderness was the only means to survive the bite of the fiery serpents. And in Acts chapter number 4, Verse number 12. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus is the only means for man to escape the bite of Satan. To escape the venom of sin. To escape the death and not natural death, but the eternal death of the soul of man in Gehenna, hell, fire, and brimstone, in a furnace of fire, where there's great torments, 
where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where man is continually falling away from the presence, from the love, the mercy, and the grace of God. Jesus is the only one that there is salvation in and the only name whereby man can be delivered from that. Now, people buck up on that and want to get angry in our world today. Well, how can Jesus be the only way? Well, that's not an appropriate way to think about it. In the wilderness, you could have said, well, why do I have to look to a brazen serpent? But you know, if you'd been bitten, you wouldn't care what means it is as long as you could be delivered. If it wasn't for the brazen serpent, then you were going to die. Well, if not for Jesus, there is no other means. So instead of saying, why is Jesus the only way, that's awful close-minded, man ought to say, thank you, God, that you did provide a way to escape the bite of Satan, the sting of sin and of death, and escape the judgment and the wrath of God in an eternal hell. God provided that. And the healing now that comes through the serpent, the brazen serpent, is by faith. They look to that, believing what God said, and God heals them of the venom. They're not extracting venom. They're not pulling blood out. They don't have to run around in circles. Remember, God provided the brazen serpent. God had it to be raised up on a pole. God set it there amongst the people. All that the people had to do was look to that, believing what God had said, and God would rid them of that venom and heal them of that bite. So is salvation not the exact same way? In Romans chapter 3, verse number 21, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So how are people delivered? By the work of Christ. Well, they look to Him and what He's already accomplished by faith, believing that His work is able to take away the sting of sin that's in their body and cause them to live in the Spirit forevermore. It's all by faith. It is without the law. There's not a work that I have to do to obtain the righteousness of God through faith, but I look to the spiritual brazen serpent. I look to Jesus Christ by faith, believing the Word of God, believing in His work, believing He's able to do the work, and believing that He will heal me. I look to Him, and God justifies me through the Spirit by my faith. So, He was also lifted up. So, Jesus says here, 
Moses lifted up the serpent, and we read in Numbers that it was placed upon a pole. And the reason for that was so, you know, you've got a pretty impressive camp of Israel, uh, probably over a million to two million people there. And if it's sitting down on the ground, then you're going to have to come and travel to Moses in order to be able to see that thing. Well, if you've been bitten and you're dying from the venom running through your veins, then you're not able to run to the serpent. What if you're on the far outskirts of the camp? be a long ways to go to get to the middle where Moses is. So God said, Moses, put it up on a pole where everybody in the camp can see it. So Jesus was lifted up in John chapter 8, verse number 28. We see Jesus speaking of this. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. So what's he speaking of, lifted up the Son of Man? He's speaking of the cross, being lifted up on the cross to die. It was necessary that he be lifted up. He says in John 24, or in Luke, I'm sorry, Luke 24, verse 44, These are the words which I spake unto you whilst I was yet with you that all these things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Back up to verse 26 of Luke 24. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? So Jesus had to be lifted up. He had to go to the cross to die and in that death, he tasted death for you and for me. Our punishment, the guilt of our sin, the payment of our sin was all laid upon him. He carried that to the cross and was lifted up there to produce and provide salvation for all of mankind that anyone that would look to him could be healed from the bite of the serpent. And when he says in Romans 3, Unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, that word, what he's saying there is the Jew and the Gentile, Jesus was lifted up that any man that would look to him, whether Jew or Gentile, there's no difference, they could be justified by faith in the operation of God. It's not whether I can get to Him or not. It's not whether uh, uh, I, I travel fast enough before I die. It's not, that, uh, it's not dependent upon anything that I do, but it's God doing the work in me because I look to Jesus by faith. Now, I understand that we cannot look naturally to the cross like the apostles and Mary did in that day. But Jesus is brought to where we are in Romans 10 and verse 8. The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. So by the gospel, Jesus, the brazen serpent, 
is lifted up unto us, and if we would come to the gospel and look to Jesus by faith, and that word faith often in the New Testament means to entrust, if we would look to Jesus and entrust His work to be sufficient to redeem us, we could be justified by the declaration of God. So there you see the picture then. You see what Moses did in the wilderness and how that that lines up with what Jesus come to do, spiritually speaking. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish. So believeth to have faith in, upon, or with respect to, to credit or entrust. Whosoever believeth in him, it is necessary of man. to believe in the work that Jesus has done. And so you've got God's work, but man must believe and entrust and credit their salvation unto Jesus Christ. So let's start there with whosoever. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish. And we, we'll see that repeated again in verse 16. But what is he saying when he says whosoever? Does this mean that if anybody believes in any means, that he can be saved? What he's saying when he says whosoever is Jew and Gentile alike. And you've got to remember that this is a complete 180 from the thinking of the Jews, especially the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, in this day. It's a complete 180 from the way it had been since Moses, that it was not open to anybody and everybody, but only the Jews could receive the goodness of God through the Old Testament and up till now. And remember the Samaritans who were the half-breeds in the northern ten tribes. And that's a whole other lesson in itself. But they had been cut off, and uh, the king, I believe of Assyria, had sent people to dwell there. And they had cross-breeded with the Jews, and what was left was not full-blooded Jewish people, but half-breeds. And the, the, the people of Jerusalem, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they hated They hated the Samaritans. And you can see that picture in John chapter 4 as he speaks with the Samaritan woman at the well. She's amazed that Jesus, being a Jew, would even speak to her, a Samaritan. The Jews didn't have dealings with the Samaritans. So they were still very much separated from the Gentile world. But Jesus has come to fulfill the prophecy to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it's worth noting that this was not something brand new that Jesus announced first when he came. But in Genesis chapter 12, verse number 1, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house unto a land that I will shew thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee, and make thy name great, 
and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So, in the very first place in Genesis, where God first speaks to Abram, to Abraham, the promise of God is, you're going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. We could go back even farther than this to where God was speaking to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. Now this is before Abraham. This is before Moses. This is before Jacob. This is before the nation of Israel was ever promised. He's promising that through the seed of Eve was going to come one that would crush the head of the serpent. Again, in Isaiah 45, we're going to look at a few places and then we'll try to put them all together. Isaiah 45 and verse number 22. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. Again, in Isaiah chapter 65, verse number 1. I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, Behold me, behold me, unto a nation that was not called by my name. So God announced to Eve, to Adam and the serpent in the Garden of Eden, God announced to Abraham, and there's many other places, many other places. And he spoke through Isaiah, all of these places informing the world that the whole world, not just the Jewish people, would look to God and be saved. In Acts chapter number 10, now Peter here had been preaching to Cornelius, who was a Gentile, Cornelius had been saved by the gospel, but Peter did not want to go to Cornelius' house because he was a Gentile. So you see how the thinking in this day was different. They were still believing that Jews, and only Jews, even after Christ they were still holding to the fact that they were preaching to the Jews. Well, God sends Peter here. We know Peter had a vision of unclean beasts, and God said, Arise and eat. What was God telling him? Well, I believe Peter sees here, chapter 10, verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. So God does not look at the person and because of who or what they are, have respect or show favor to one, not another. This way of salvation is open unto every race, every creed, every religious background, every name under heaven can come through Christ and be saved. And we can see just how tight this gets in Acts chapter 11, Peter's going to be accused and you could say in trouble because he went to a Gentile's house. And I believe you can see Paul 
fighting that same battle all through his work as an apostle to the Gentiles. They opposed what he was doing all through. And in Timothy, now what did Jesus come for? He didn't come to just save the Jews. He didn't come to just save the Gentiles. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Who did Jesus come for? Sinners. Remember the picture? Why was the brazen serpent lifted? It was lifted for all those that had been bitten by the fiery serpents. Why did Jesus come? To bring deliverance to all of those that had been bitten by Satan. So it was not just to the Jews. It was to all that believeth. So there is the hinge point. Jesus didn't die and immediately the whole world saved. There is that believing that must be done on the part of every individual in order for them to be saved. So then, now this is the way that Satan twists the scripture and he twists it using preachers and churches and teachers and people all over our world. They take this and say, well, all you got to do is believe and you're redeemed. Well, is that really the case? I mean, if you read it at face value, that's the way it sounds. And as we get down in this chapter more and more, I believe we will see more and more why that's not the case and why man can't just believe as it's being portrayed in our world. But whosoever believeth. So let's stick with the book of John for just a minute. John chapter 1 verse number 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on his name. So you see the tie here, receiving him, that means to take or hold, and believing, those are the same things. He came to his own, so the Jews, and the majority did not receive him. But to anybody that received him, he gave them power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe, which were born. So how did these people believe? Well, he's going to tell us that they were born not of blood, not because they were Jews, or Gentiles, or because they were of the lineage of the high priest, or a Levite, or a Benjamite. None of that mattered. It was not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. It was not because they were not born because they really wanted to be saved. The truth is, man doesn't really want to be saved. But it was not the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. It wasn't the outward pressure of others that caused them to believe and be born, but of God. Why did they believe and receive Jesus? Because God had allowed them to believe it. Uh, and I know that's a hard saying. Who can hear it? In John chapter 6, verse 35, 
I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. So there we go again. If you just believe, then this bread of life is going to take care of you. Verse 36, he goes a little deeper. But I said unto you that ye have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. So Jesus here, he says, I'm the bread of life. God sent me to this earth that all of those that would believe in me might have life and live, might escape the judgment of God, might escape the bite of the devil, might have his the venom and sting of sin removed from their life and no longer be liable to face God's wrath in the judgment, but be redeemed. But it's tighter than that. These people that he's speaking to seen him, but didn't believe. Why did they not believe? He says in verse 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. So how are people going to come to Jesus believing and be saved? It's because God gives them to Christ. On down verse 39. This is the will of this is the Father's will which has sent me that of all he hath given me I should lose nothing but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up the last day. So you see how all this is together? Now you can't separate the two. Who's going to see the Son believe and be raised up? Them that the Father has given. You see, it's not of the will of the flesh. It's not of blood. It's not of the will of man. Jews are not saved because they're Jews. Gentiles are not saved because they're Gentiles. People teach that. I hear that in my neck of the woods. I hear that taught that, well, they're all right because they're of the lineage of Abraham. It's not of blood. It's them who believe. How do they believe? By the work of God done on the inside of the heart. It all redounds to the glory of God. We all are familiar with the scripture where Jesus asks his disciples, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Some said that he was Isaiah. Some said Jeremiah. Some said Elijah. Some said John the Baptist or one of the other prophets. And Jesus said, but who do ye say that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, how did Jesus, how did Peter have that revelation when nobody else had it. Remember what everybody else was saying? They were saying, 
he's one of the prophets. They were saying that he is Isaiah. They were saying that he was Elijah or John the Baptist raised from the dead. But Peter was able to see who he really was. How was that? He says, this is Matthew 16 verse 17, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. How was it Peter was able to see the Son of God? Because God revealed unto him the Son. If God's not at work, drawing and working, man can't believe in the Son of God. It's the truth. In Romans chapter 9, one more place and we'll move on. I know, I know and I realize that this is not an easy doctrine for the carnal mind to accept, but it wants to willingly and immediately reject it without any consideration. And we'll broach it carefully when we do, but I want you to realize this is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible teaches. In Romans 9:16. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that sheweth mercy. It's not what the man decides. It's not whether I decide to believe or that I make a decision for Christ. It's not up to me. It's God that sheweth mercy. That's how Peter believed when nobody else did. That's how anybody truly believes and is saved. If that could be preached and taught everywhere, uh, our church world would be in much better shape. But instead, we've got churches and church roles filled with people that say they're saved, that think they're saved. There's no operation of God in the heart. So he was given that whosoever believeth in him, not in their self, but their trust is in Christ, should not perish. So in John 5, verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. So what, what's he saving man from? From perishing. From a complete destruction. The word means in strongs to destroy fully. So Jesus has come that man would not be fully destroyed in the depths of hell. That man would not come into the condemnation of the law of God and be judged for his sin, but be set free from the glory of God. And this work of Jesus is 100% secure. He cannot come into condemnation because they that come to Christ have already passed from death unto life. In John chapter 10, verse number 28, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. This work of Christ will prevent man from being destroyed fully. You don't have to fear. You don't have to worry. You're not going to lose that. And 
you know, the, the accusation that you hear from saying those things is, well, you're saying people can believe and live how they want to, at least if you say they can lose it, then it, they're motivated to live for God more. Now that's the thinking of religious people today. You're giving people an out to live how they want, but that's not the case. I'm saying what the Bible teaches, that Christ gives eternal life, they shall not come into condemnation, and they will not be plucked out of Jesus' hand, nor of the hand of the Father. It is a secure and an unlosable salvation. If I have eternal life, would you not say that I have a life that cannot end well, if I have eternal life given from God, it can't end, no matter what I do. So this salvation, 100% secure and eternal, it means perpetual, never ceasing, continuing forever in future time. So a life that does not end. So the question would be, how do you interpret this? When does God give eternal life? If we're going to say you can lose your salvation, then what you must be saying is that those that receive eternal life, they receive it at the end after the judgment. If I receive it now, then it, can't, it can never end. You see that? So it depends on how we interpret this one word. Does Jesus give eternal life when they're saved? Or does this come at the end after the judgment? Well, I believe Jesus is going to clarify in this same exact book, John chapter 6, verse 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Not will receive it, but he that believes hath everlasting life. We already read in John chapter 5, verse 24, shall not come into condemnation, but is presently, at the time that they believe, is passed from death unto life. Not will be, depending on how I do between here and there. But by the work of God in Christ Jesus, they have passed from death unto life. And by what Jesus says in John chapter 6, they have eternal life. Presently. Currently. And in 1 John, the apostle, he writes this. 1 John chapter 5, verse number 11. And this is the record that God hath given. That's past tense. God already hath given eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life. So if I have the Son, I have eternal life. He that hath not the Son 
He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. So to them that believe, John says, I'm writing to you that believe and are saved, that you might have absolute 100% confidence in your salvation that God has redeemed you and you have presently eternal life. Not something that can be lost. Not something that can be undone by the way I live. But something that God has performed by His abundant grace in Jesus Christ. Now that verse 15 there, that's the latter half of verse 16. And it's going to be repeated. So, we won't cover that as closely when we look at verse 16, but we're out of time for, the, for today. I hope the Word of God has been a help to you. And I realize not many people listen maybe all the way to the end. But if you have a hard time believing in the election of God, don't shut it down immediately, but consider it with what the Scripture teaches. And I believe, I'm confident, if you're willing to search it out as the Bereans did and see whether it's the truth or not, you'll come to the conclusion that God has redeemed man by His eternal will and His eternal will alone. You know, if you have a hard time with that, thinking, well, God's not fair. Well, God... If God had not chosen to save some, then there would be none that's saved. So glory to God for His wondrous plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. Hope you have a wonderful week. We love you. And until next time.